Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Rachel Dixon and I'm joined today by four members of the Brexit Law NI team, a group of researchers and academics looking at the impact of Brexit on human rights in Northern Ireland. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves to you as there are four of them and they're best placed to introduce themselves and tell us a bit about their project and what we're going to discuss and what you're going to hear about on today's episode. My name's Colin Harvey from School of Law at, at Queen's and I'm involved in the collaborative project Brexit Law NI. It's an ESRC funded project under the UK and a Changing Europe initiative. It's a collaboration between Queen's, Ulster University and the Committee on the Administration of Justice, which is the leading regional human rights organisation. And we're looking at the consequences of Brexit for Northern Ireland across a range of areas, including its impact on the peace process, North-South relations, its impact on human rights and equality issues and issues such as free movement and border controls. Uh, my name is Rory O'Connell. I'm director of the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University and I'm one of the project collaborators on Brexit Law NI. Hi, I'm uh, Brian Gormley. I'm director of the Committee on the Administration of Justice, uh, which, as Colin said, is a human rights uh, NGO that focuses on human rights issues which we think are important for uh, either a peaceful or a violent future in this region. Hello, I am Amanda Kramer. I'm the full-time um, postgraduate research fellow on the programme. So how I thought we'd start off today is just give people a general overview of the structure of your project and what you've been doing um, in terms of looking at Brexit and its impact in Northern Ireland and how that um, has been carried out and what you've been up to. So we want to give people an update on that. Well, we've been we've been uh, we've held a number of uh, stakeholder meetings around Northern Ireland. We've been conducting uh, a range of semi-structured interviews as well, and we've also had a number of town hall meetings in places like Newry and Enniskillen too, as part of the project. At the moment, we're all working very hard on completing our six project reports across the areas yeah. that we've talked about. And what we plan to do in the time ahead is to, to launch those reports at various locations. And obviously, as well, we're, we're in a critical moment in the negotiations around Brexit as we come up to the European Council meeting at the end of June and the discussions that will develop over the summer up to including September and October too. So we hope that our project will feed into that wider conversation about the consequences for Brexit for Northern Ireland. And what's really been remarkable is, as we've been doing this project is that so much has remained speculation that we're doing a project in the midst of an, an ongoing negotiation mm. and the challenges that, that that has involved. But really, it's been very noticeable how central Northern Ireland and the Ireland issues have become to the entire negotiation. We are now really centre stage, I think. One of the reasons, clearly, why Northern Ireland is centre stage yeah. at the minute is 
the investment that the European Union, as well as the United Kingdom, have made in the peace process. Uh, and, you know, the conflict, if you like, when you look back on it, was so, um, so much a kind of disruptive impact on Europe uh, as, as well as the rest of the world and as well as our particular part of it, that there is a huge desire not to go uh, back to conflict. And that's why people tend to use, in a sense, the shorthand of the idea of a hard border. Uh, but in our view, the issue is, is rather more complicated mm -hmm. than whether you've got a technological fix on the border. It goes to the heart of, uh, of the constitutional settlement, if you like, that, was, uh, that underlay the, the peace process. So that's one of our concerns that uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about later. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the fascinating features about the Brexit process is, as my colleagues have said, the centrality of Northern Ireland, uh, which the European Union identified very early on as one of the three priority issues where there needed to be uh, agreement in the first instance. Uh, and the UK negotiators and the EU negotiators uh, last year in December produced a joint report uh, which outlined the state of agreement on those three priority areas, including Northern Ireland. Uh, in relation to Northern Ireland, there were a number of issues that are quite important. Uh, one is the overall question of regulation. Uh, and here the joint report identified three possible futures. Uh, one where the situation of Northern Ireland and the border would be addressed as part of a global agreement between the UK and the EU. Uh, failing that, uh, the UK would propose specific solutions to address the issue of the border in Northern Ireland. And these are usually understood to mean technological solutions. Uh, and then the third option for the future uh, is the so-called backstop. Uh, and the backstop uh, says that for certain purposes, in effect, Northern Ireland will be part of a common regulatory area uh, with the European Union uh, in those areas that are essential to the uh, safeguarding of the Good Friday Agreement uh, in all of its parts and ensuring North-South cooperation. That, that is the, those are the sort of futures that are outlined in that joint report, but the joint report is also important for showing agreement on some rights issues. Uh, there is a commitment to the idea there must be no diminution of rights in Northern Ireland. Uh, and there is also an important clause uh, recognizing that those people of Northern Ireland who exercise the right to Irish citizenship will also enjoy European Union citizenship rights. Uh, and that's a very important recognition. Fast forward a few months uh, in spring of this year, the European Union uh, produced a very detailed draft legal treaty uh, that would put legal flesh on these very bare bones of the joint report. Uh, and that outlines in a protocol how the backstop solution, the third solution, would work. 
if all of the other solutions aren't possible. Uh, and indicates in its Article 1 of this protocol that there are certain safeguards for rights uh, as understood in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, so that's kind of where we are now and we're still awaiting the further developments and negotiations with some suggestion that there may be important decisions being made in June, uh, but I think there's also realistic possibility some of this will be pushed further on down the line uh, until October. So thinking about the six areas that your project covers, and you can handily Rory finish there with thinking about human rights, am I right in thinking that um, a lot of your findings in your reports might be identifying risks that might appear as a result of Brexit for human rights in Northern Ireland, or not? No, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we've been trying to, to think about are the constitutional human rights equality and conflict transformation implications of, of all this. And obviously one impact has been the, the impact on the peace process itself and the destabilising impact of Brexit on that. You know, the EU was a common background assumption of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. The EU is textually present in the agreement as well, contrary to what is sometimes said about that, it is it is there. And the EU has provided enormous support, both in terms of the thinking that went into the Good Friday Agreement itself, but also materially afterwards too. So there's been that destabilising impact. I suppose a concern that we've had in the project is that a lot of the conversation has been about customs and trades and tariffs and technology and but we've noticed very strongly that there are serious equality and human rights implications of Brexit. You know, losing the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union is only really one of those. There are a lot of EU-derived rights that may go or be degraded over time, including all the enforcement, the more muscular enforcement mechanisms that exist within European Union law. So I think a concern that is emerging as part of our project is that the equality and rights impacts, the risks there, are being neglected in the wider conversation. Now, that's not to note that there's been excellent work done by a range of organisations. For example, it's been great to see the Joint Committee of Human Rights on the island of Ireland re-emerge and to make clear statements around precisely uh, these issues. But I think the worry we would have is that unless these issues are concretely addressed, if they're not clarified sooner rather than later, people may find that in a post-Brexit context, rights and equality guarantees have either disappeared or been seriously eroded. So I think we very much welcome the fact, it's interesting to note that Article 1, Protocol 1, is rights of individuals and we're pleased in a sense to see that there. I think that is a testament I think, to a lot of the hard work that's going on to try and remind people that that needs to be there. But as part of the work that we've been doing in responding to that draft legal text is to just seek some more clarification. You know, there's aspects of the protocol that haven't been filled in yet. For example, the, the and there's an annex there that talks about provisions of EU law. We want to see more detail about that. We want to hear more about the Charter of Fundamental Rights and whether that uh, will be included. And I suppose for us, no diminution <laughs> means no diminution. You know, regression is a big problem in terms of rights and equality. Remember, you know, an overriding context for this is the current government in London is still committed at the far end of this 
to repealing the Human Rights Act, mm-hmm. uh, which is a grave concern, I think, to, to many people working in the, the human rights field. So I think what we've been trying to do as one part of the project is note the sort of destabilisation of the peace process and the wider constitutional arrangements here, but also highlight very strongly as part of the Brexit law and I work and message the human rights and equality risks that Brexit poses. Yeah, can I just uh, add to, to that? Because, um, I mean, at one level, of course, uh, we're all uh, interested in human rights everywhere in the UK, in the world and so on. Uh, but it's important to recognise why human rights uh, are so vital mm-hmm. on this island. Uh, and that goes back again to the question of the conflict. Because we all know that violent conflict means a bonfire of human rights. For good or ill, right or wrong, violence and repression means human rights suffer. So from a human rights perspective, the first thing we need to do is to defend that agreement that has given us 20 years of relative peace. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty was, or is, that the peace settlement was a delicate construction, not uh, a kind of horse trading, I could do rightly kind of thing, you know. Um, it was a, a designed to allow those with different national aspirations and allegiances even to share the same political and geographical space. And it relies very much on trust. If you think of the the the, the the underpinning uh, pillars, which are really about trust. Trust that the people of the whole island can exercise their right of self-determination without external impediment. That was the fundamental basis that allowed the negotiations to begin. Trust that only the people of Northern Ireland can decide its constitutional feature. Trust that the birthright, as it's expressed in the agreement, to be Irish or British or both, means equality, equality of citizenship. Uh, Trust that no one community can dominate the other. And finally, trust that Northern Ireland, even if it's a temporary stop for, as it were, both sides, can be a fair rights-based society to which everybody can, if not pledge national allegiance, at least can have trust in the institutions that run our society. Now, each and every one of those aspects is undermined uh, by Brexit, uh, in our opinion. Um, I mean, we can go into the way in which it ignores the All-Ireland character of the the settlement. Uh, It rejected the will of the people of Northern Ireland in this respect uh, because the majority voted uh, to remain uh, and it you, you've got at the moment an alliance between the UK government and the party the only party that was f- fully in favour of, of leave uh, who in a sense are forcing through on the majority of the people of Northern Ireland, uh, uh, a settlement which they they didn't agree with. So we've got real problems there, and in our view, the only way to really roll back from that is to enhance that uh, concept of a rights-based society. Mm 
to actually building new guarantees as well as hopefully fulfilling the unfulfilled bits uh, yeah. of the agreement. I think that's really interesting um, in terms of what both we were saying there about how um, you know we need to protect what we got you know in 1998 in the Good Friday Agreement and the 20 years of work that have got, has gone into that since. But it, for me, you know, thinking about that, it's also well what we still haven't achieved and not just protecting the human rights, you know, freedoms and equality that we enjoy right now, but also what we hope to enjoy in the future. And you know, there's still a lot of progression. You know, talked about not wanting regression or diminution, if I can say it rightly. Um, <laughs> As a result of Brexit, but we also, I would um, maybe have comment on that. I think, and well, how could Brexit affect our progression? You know, as thinking about you know rights that we don't have here in Northern Ireland as a result of you know certain political things that go on, um, and how much is you know is Brexit a threat to progression of further equality and human rights protections? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think you know we were talking earlier about. Uh, Rather jokingly about some of the opportunities of Brexit, but in a sense, you know, one of the opportunities for Brexit has been for as part of this project, and over the participants of this project, to remind people about the outstanding uh, commitments in relation to human rights and equality here. Um, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the 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 Bill of Rights process here, the Charter of Rights for the Island of Ireland, uh, the discussions around a single equality legislation for Northern Ireland as well. So in a sense, Brexit rather oddly has uh, resurrected mm. the Good Friday Agreement, has uh, given life to many of these processes around rights and equality, and the conversation has become heightened for precisely the reasons that have been mentioned, to build in guarantees around the human rights of everyone here, given the uncertainties of the future. But there's a really concrete question around the current discussions on enforcement and keeping pace. You know, one of the things we've talked about in our project reports is, you know, what do you do in the future? about some of these rights violations that may emerge and European Union law has particular strong remedies that, that, that may go at the far end of this. But equally, you know, it's not just you, t you take a picture of things on the day you leave and then it's that EU law will evolve over time. The e EU itself has evolved in a much more human rights and equality mm -hmm. friendly, if you like, direction in some respects. And, you know, how will Northern Ireland keep pace with that, keep in tune with that, you know, is that about making sure the courts are taking fully into account the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice of the EU as it evolves over time, a bit like the Human Rights Act model, or is it about retaining the option of going to the Court of Justice of the European Union to try and enforce this stuff? I think these are important questions I think that we are, we are trying to think about, raise and provide solutions to in our project. Yeah. A further issue that flows from that is uh, not just that about the a progressive improvement of human rights, but also the risk of divergence in the enjoyment of rights between North and South uh, on this island. Uh, so the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, uh, refers to uh, the notion of equivalence, uh, worded specifically that um, Ireland should maintain an equivalent level of protection of rights to that which exists in Northern Ireland, uh, because at, the, at that particular moment in time, uh, there is certain rights protections that didn't exist uh, south of the border uh, that were being planned north of the border, such as incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights. 
but there is that idea in there that uh, whilst not having necessarily identical protections across the border, there should be an equivalence in the protection of rights. Uh, and this is something where Brexit clearly threatens divergence because Ireland will be implementing EU regulations and directives and treaty amendments in the future, but it's not clear what will happen in respect of Northern Ireland and future developments uh, in these areas. Amanda, you mentioned about um, the particular area of um, racism and xenophobia and doing some work on that. Do you want to speak to that just while we're talking about progression in rights and that might be a particular area that will come to the fore that maybe wasn't as you know predominant for Northern Ireland previously? Yeah, I think one thing probably that Brexit has done is brought this broader issue of racism and xenophobia um, to people's attention. I think the portrayal in the news um, of the kind of everyday kind of racism that people have faced, particularly after the Brexit referendum, um, gives a snapshot that a lot of people probably wouldn't see otherwise in their daily lives. Um, so there, since the referendum, there have been rising levels of hate crime in England and Wales, but also more broadly across the UK. Um, there was an initial dip in Northern Ireland in uh, the reporting of of hate crime, mm-hmm. um, but since then it's actually gone back up. Um, so there are an average of two reported incidents in Northern Ireland each day. Um, So I think it's important also to recognise that this is a very underreported area of crime. Um, As many as approximately 80% of people don't report their victimisation of hate crime. So it's an area that there's a group of people that can be quite vulnerable, um, people that don't necessarily have a relationship with the police or the language skills to be able to communicate their experiences with the police um, or that kind of basic level of trust. And so this is definitely an issue that we're concerned about. And I think the referendum's focus on controlling immigration Mm -hmm. and um, taking back control over the borders has really fueled this feeling. Um, So groups even like Amnesty International have explicitly linked this rhetoric of particularly the Leave campaign of targeting immigration and taking back control um, with this rise in racism and xenophobia. And I think what this has also done is highlight that we need a lot more focus on protection for these populations. Um, So the police in Northern Ireland have had a focus um, on trying to increase the reporting of the community um, for race hate crime in particular. Um, But their most recent reports have revealed that they haven't been particularly successful in doing this Mm -hmm. yet. Um, But it's good that it's getting it's getting these kinds of issues onto the agenda. Um, I think there are issues in relation to immigration policy and the hostile environment that we can probably come back to as well. Mm -hmm. But it's recognizing that there are different groups that experience their human rights differently. Mm -hmm. And we've created groups that are much more vulnerable and less able to access their human rights. And I think Brexit has really exacerbated that on a number of different levels, um, which hopefully we'll get into as well. Could I pick up on the um, yeah. immigration question? Because yeah. it's it's really connected, as, as you indicated, uh, 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 Amanda. 
We're very concerned about the post-Brexit scenario because if, for example, you have a so-called soft border, in some people's minds, that's going to mean a porous border mm -hmm. in terms of illegal immigration. Uh, and what we're concerned about is an enhanced immigration enforcement regime in Northern Ireland that instead of being of happening at the border turns Northern Ireland into one big border. The new powers that uh, are in the Immigration Acts of 2014 and 2016 that, that in a sense privatise uh, immigration enforcement whereby landlords, banks, uh, the health service are all recruited to uh, actually check people's immigration status uh, could increase. But also, um, where you've got the common travel area and Irish and British citizens are not required to show passports at any, um, um, uh, on any journey between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, whichever part of it it might be, you've got a, a greater risk of racial profiling. Mm -hmm. In other words, where immigration officers pick on people because they look foreign. And this isn't just a theoretical uh, uh, situation. Um, uh, the other week, we publicized a case where uh, a guy who's a British citizen, but is black skin, travelled from Northern Ireland to Scotland and at each of the four locations where he could have been stopped, he was the only person taken out of a queue of white people to be asked about his immigration status. Leaving Northern Ireland, entering Scotland, leaving Scotland and entering Northern Ireland on the ferry. Now, that was at, on the same day was it in Parliament uh, a junior minister was arguing that there will not be any immigration checks on common travel area journeys. Now, you know, that's happening now. Border Force is recruiting more people, specifically for Northern Ireland. Uh, the Home Office, as everybody says, is not fit for purpose when it comes to immigration enforcement, but is immigration enforcement are boasting that they're going to enhance their use of powers and they've actually uh, said that this was the first jurisdiction where people have been convicted of the crime of illegal working in the United Kingdom. That's rather than the employer being prosecuted, it's the workers, you know, and this was put down as organised crime. Uh, you know, three guys working in a, a restaurant down the country. So this is a real risk and it's part of the mood of xenophobia and racism that Amanda was talking about, but it's also specifically connected with Brexit, with the desire to um, control our borders uh, and the perceived threat of a porous border on this island. It's interesting as well with the contrast between that and you know the carefully crafted um, provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. And I, th I was reading something actually yesterday because my own research looks at EU border management um, about how, um, well, firstly about um, controlling people coming in and out of your own territory is the last bastion of sovereignty, and that's essentially you know the heart of the debate that we're going back to now. Is, you know, we're getting that sovereignty back. I look forward to receiving it in the post uh, <laughs> next March. Um, but the other bit was how without clear guidance, without clear guidelines and clear policies and clear um, instructions on how to implement 
implemented said policies, then there's, it becomes, and the EU has experienced this with its um, Frontex agency and control of its own borders and scenarios in Greece and, and Italy and more widespread, is that people on the ground, the personnel who are hired to enforce these policies have such a wide range of scope in terms of how to do that. And that is problematic for the person who is trying to cross the border and present their documents um, and have their rights accepted and granted to them. Um, so I think that is probably something um, interesting in terms of how that, you know, that there is an imperative to have clear you know, provisions off the back of Brexit so that people are know what is the system that and how is it supposed to operate, not just debates on, well, what should the system be? You know, it has to go beyond and thinking of, it's not just a great, the decision-making process, but it's the implementation. Sorry, sidetrack. <laughs> no, not at all. And I think, I think one thing, it's almost the opportunity of Brexit that these issues, which are continuing issues, are brought to the to Well, the that's fall. the thing. And for, you know, thinking, yes, there in Northern Ireland, we, we were remain largely as a population, and some of us might be very resistant to the idea of Brexit still, um, and hope that somewhere it might not eventually happen. Um, but I think the thing of it is, you're, is if it is going to happen, and we just have to give in to the fact that it may be inevitable, well, we need to make it a, you know, a, a good Brexit, and not in the sense of, yes, we're getting free and our sovereignty back, but in the sense of, well, what policies do we have? And how are they going to be implemented? And are we clear on th- how things are operating rather than like, yeah, we got out and it's a mess of, well, what do we do now? You know? but I, th- I think one of the, the that raises a very important point, mm-hmm. Rachel, about the issue of Northern Ireland and the, the the scale of the Remain vote. Obviously, we've seen very clear evidence emerging from uh, a related project, John Gary Queens, this week about the rise and rise of the Remain vote in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know that it's it's a very substantial vote, and I suppose one of the things that concern us constitutionally is just a worry about the danger in ignoring that 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 remain vote in the in the, in the current conversation and how that's respected. But I suppose from a human rights and equality perspective, it's like the common travel area conversation, you know, which you know, in some senses has been interestingly agreed, uh, but is talked about as if it's a, a tangible thing very often and I think what we've noticed in our project is that you know the, the need for perhaps codification of that document but not just codification that some of the human rights and equality principles that, that we're talking about are mainstreamed into the way the, the, the common travel area actually operates because the, the concern would be that a lot of things that people now take for granted or maybe think that are there uh, won't actually hold up after Brexit. So the common travel area is often talked about, but at the moment it's a rather ad hoc arrangement, and that may be in the interest of both governments, by the way, to retain it as an ad hoc uh, informal arrangement. We haven't spoken about some of the security and other justice cooperation that goes on around these islands as well, but I think what we've noticed is that we need to bring the human rights and equality conversation to bear on the discussion around the common travel area as well for some of the reasons that Brian has pointed out. I guess as well there's a risk, yeah, the border could be infiltrated into to, um, general society and hospitals and schools and all those kind of places, but it could also risk thinking about it be that you know your ports and your airports and the border areas become these like well human rights and equality exists outside of those but when you step in through the metal detector or whatever and you submit yourself to this process well actually we leave that all behind you know and that doesn't matter to terms you know 
as well. So that kind of agreeing with that idea of well, codifying what should happen and, and what are the procedures. Because I've heard your story about that um, guy travelling to Scotland. I've heard similar stories of, about um, Bristol Airport and you know certain Northern Ireland flights being mm. subjected to more rigorous controls than other um, flights flying in and out of there. So it's like this idea that, yeah, the border could be everywhere, but also, well, human rights and equality need to be everywhere, not just you know abandoned in those kind of you know, physical spaces of ports and airports and all those kind of things. It is important just to to highlight something which has come up here in the the conversation, which I think isn't actually been heard at the moment. And uh, Brian's raised it is that some of these things are happening now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're noticing some of these things are happening now. Um, the intensification of checks, as we know from a university context, for example, uh, the Home Office takes a keen interest, <laughs> for example, in, in, in those. So some of these things are happening now as part of this hostile environment mm-hmm. policy. Now, in terms of the human rights and equality response to some of that, you know, changing it from a hostile environment to a compliant environment doesn't get at the bigger structural questions around what is going on but it's been intriguing you know for us in this project to watch the reaction to the Windrush debate mm-hmm. that's emerged in Britain the opportunity perhaps for something that we've actually called for in this project which is a new and different conversation about Northern Ireland and the needs of Northern Ireland about migration here and that debate that may not be in tune with some of the policies emerging from the Home Office, so it'll be very interesting to see how that debate evolves. But some of the things are happening now, and if a hostile environment becomes a compliant environment, uh, then we haven't moved very far in the discussion. Yeah, people's people's rights are already being violated on quite a high scale, I think, with the, with the hostile environment policies. A lot of um, immigration lawyers and human rights activists uh, have been highlighting you know people can't access housing so you landlords are required um, there's this burden put on them to not house people who are here illegally so it, it pushes this duty onto landlords to become immigration police and um, there was a report done in England about this and um, the Joint Council for Welfare um, of, immigra- of immigrants found that 42% of landlords were unlikely to rent to someone without a British passport and 25% were less likely, self-identified, um, to rent to people who appear foreign. So this pushes people to rogue landlords. Um, so I think it's it's this is already happening. It's not necessarily in relation to Brexit. But it's probably going to get worse. And as this hostile environment, I think, increases with the highlighting, as Colin did, of the Windrush scandal, people are scared. Um, People are leaving. People maybe don't want to access services that they need, like healthcare, Mm -hmm. um, because they might be charged if they are here illegally or that they might face this hostile environment of having to prove that they have access to healthcare. Um, people are scared to go to the police as well. People, There's been reports of the police reporting victims who've presented to the police to immigration enforcement. Um, so there was a case of a woman who was allegedly raped and she reported this to the police and was taken to a detention centre uh, for illegal immigration. So it's, it's not just the really specific human rights violations, I think, that take place, but it's this broader environment where people are scared 
to exercise their rights, potentially even if they have them, you know, if they have access to mm-hmm. them, if they're here legally. Mm-hmm. It's that culture of fear, I think, that... Can't claim them. Yeah, yeah. that people are scared to kind of push that mm-hmm. um, because they don't want to put their immigration status at risk. I think just the other thing, on just a small point on that, is that when we use the term illegal immigrants, of course there are some illegal immigrants, but the vast majority of people who are categorised like that, we really ought to say are not yet legal mm-hmm. because they're under investigation yeah. for refugee or asylum status and so on. And we know how great the Home Office is at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as we've, you know, the Windrush scandal was only the most obvious kind of uh, ways in which to get it wrong. Can I go yeah. change the topic slightly and go back to some of the security issues mm-hmm. that Colin mentioned? Because there is a relationship between rights protection and security. Uh, so, for instance, there have to be questions about how you have security cooperation between the EU and the UK if the UK is not signing up to rights standards. Um, in the EU, uh, especially but not just on data protection and the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And there's already a question, for instance, is it appropriate to use the European arrest warrant procedure to extradite someone to the UK uh, when the UK has announced uh, it's effectively uh, renouncing the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Uh, And that takes us back to the very first point about Brexit and its destabilizing effect on uh, Northern Ireland and North-South relations and East-West relations. Uh, because some of us are old enough to remember the very bitter disputes about extradition uh, between Ireland and Britain and Ireland and Northern Ireland in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, and the European arrest warrant procedure, and one can criticize it of course, um, but the European arrest warrant procedure has depoliticized uh, those debates. Um, it is not clear uh, that if Britain and Ireland have to negotiate a new extradition treaty that will be able to avoid the politicization of that debate. And that's another instance in which uh, Brexit has the potential uh, to uh, upset relations in these islands. That's maybe a good time to speak more broadly to North-South relations as well, just in terms of the effect that Brexit could have on that. How do you... what? Where are we at with North-South relations at the moment, given the fact we've no devolution is stalled? Um, and how do you see that unfolding as you know the Brexit negotiations go on? Uh, there was, an, a, a, was at a conference yesterday in, in, in London um, uh, as part of the, the, the project, the UK and Changing Europe initiative, and somebody used the, the term that the Cold War on the island was back, you know, that... <laughs> That that relationships uh, were, were now uh, in a difficult uh, place on the island. I think the fact that many of us, including as as part of this work, had predicted that that would likely be the result of of Brexit is, is no comfort to anyone at the moment. I think in terms of where the debate is at, obviously the Irish issues have become central, particularly leading up to the council meeting at the end of June. Um, it, it's difficult to see how any Irish government could really have reacted differently to uh, the, the way in which the Irish government has uh, reacted to this and, and taken the issues to the, to the heart of the, the conversation. 
But interestingly, one of the themes that emerged yesterday, and it goes back to what my, my colleagues have said, is that that in the 1990s, um, the EU and that thinking influenced the, the Good Friday Agreement in this sense. The Good Friday Agreement doesn't contain all the answers to what is going to emerge, but contains many of the answers. It's a, it's a carefully crafted document that thinks in relational and multi-stranded ways about all the sets of relationships around these islands, uh, Northern Ireland, North, South and East, West. It does that on the basis of principles and values, including human rights and equality and mutual respect, partnership, but it also does so in concrete terms in terms of institutions. And I think in terms of managing uh, the relationships on these islands in the framework of the totality of relationships around these islands, I think the answers are in the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. Not all the answers, but many of the answers to rebuilding relationships. And I think both governments have something to answer for in relation to that. Obviously, you know, a context for our conversation today is the Assembly mm-hmm. and the Executive uh, isn't function, functioning and some of the reasons for that relate to the equality and human rights issues that we're working on in relation to the project as well as Brexit but both governments as well uh, have not been good at using the institutions that were there as part of the agreement you know how many people really know about the British Irish Council how many people really know about the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference that could usefully be meeting at the moment to try and take forward these conversations I think a sort of sidebar to that is that one of the things we've noticed in our conversation and our project uh, is the devolution debate within the UK uh, which, as we know, is ongoing. Uh, the Joint uh, Ministerial Committee is is taking its work forward. We know that Scotland is still standing firm in relation to its position and Wales has, has taken a different view on that. But an additional thing that we maybe need to talk about is that the internal UK structures for intergovernmental cooperation and dialogue between Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Westminster Parliament are, to use the phrase in relation to the to the Home Office, that they don't work, they're not fit for purpose, they can't bear the weight of what this process is going to place on them. So if there needs to be a discussion within the UK in terms of the UK's constitutional uh, structuring or ordering that rebrands those, re-enhances those to give the UK intergovernmental com- conversation more dynamic and I think it's an important thing that we've noticed. I suppose the big picture constitutional question for here and, and we've stated it again and again is that there was a feeling I think here constitutionally that the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, the Northern Ireland Act, the international legal obligations changed something constitutionally here uh, that, 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 that also took the UK in a more pluralistic direction. Mm-hmm. And what's been astounding about the Brexit language is that the Brexit language takes us back to very old-style, sovereigntist, us-and-them type conversation where British and Irishness falls uh, into that us-and-them type discussion. So I think that's really, really concerning. Some of that may be fought out and discussed in the courts in the months and weeks and years ahead. As to, and it'll be interesting to see how the UK Supreme Court and other courts actually, the Royal Court of Justice, the European Union, and some of these conversations too, uh, will, will be interesting to see. But I suppose the headline is the sense in which that some of the solutions to the relationship building, which have been fractured, I think there is a risk that a, a new Cold War will emerge on the island. Some of the solutions... 
uh, are there. We're not starting from a blank page, and the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement, provides some of the answers. That maybe seems like a good point, unless anyone has anything else they want to say on any of the specific themes and what you find, to look towards the future and think about potential solutions that you maybe have identified through your work in the last months. Um, to think so Collins mentioned there about you know the importance of the Good Friday Agreement providing maybe you know like a roadmap in terms of potential you know already existing not even potential already existing solutions if they were implemented um, any other solutions that you've identified in terms of ensuring rights and equality are protected and and hopefully enhanced well we have been working with uh, MPs and mm-hmm. uh, members of the House of Lords on the progress of the uh, withdrawal bill with colleagues in uh, in England uh, and uh, there have been a number of amendments to the withdrawal bill which are useful uh, such as um, trying to give some kind of legal effect to the uh, Good Friday Agreement uh, also trying to maintain uh, adherence to the Charter of Fundamental rights and freedoms um, after Brexit. Uh, that kind of, of legal mechanism is, uh, is still important. Um, but I suppose, you know, it, at one level when we say, oh look, what you need is human rights protections and so on, uh, people might say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, that's their field, you know, that's what they do. And of course that's true. But really, genuinely and seriously, we do believe that in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, in the context of the very special nature of Northern Ireland, perhaps not legally, constitutionally, uh, as, as black letter law would have it, but the need to be have some flexibility when you've got a really divided population in national allegiance apart from anything else, then we do need special arrangements and we need a special enhancement of a rights-based society, a fair society, a society that people say, well, it's not maybe my long-term future aspiration, but I tell you what, you can trust the institutions that run our daily lives. And at the moment, I don't think hand on heart you could really say that. And we do need a Bill of Rights, for example, which was prefigured in the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Uh, we, we, there's a whole range of protections that we need on social and economic rights and, and so on. But if there is an opportunity out of Brexit, I think it's got to be in that direction and to stress the special nature, the, 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 the need to safeguard peace, the need to safeguard the future in this area by special arrangements um, if the UK leaves then uh, and even if it doesn't <laughs> we still need more <laughs> uh, and just to uh, push that a bit further if we think about the different legal systems that we're talking about here Northern Ireland the UK Britain the European Union uh, the traditional British approach to constitutionalism uh, is one that functions without rigid entrenchment, that functions without rigid limitations being placed on government, uh, that vests a lot of authority in a majoritarian system of government. But that doesn't work in Northern Ireland. 
Uh, and in Northern Ireland, uh, we have, of course, a power-sharing system, but a system that is shaped by the notion of limited government, and government limited by rights and equality guarantees, uh, by legal guarantees. And that's also a parallel with the European Union, which is very much a law-driven system uh, based on rights and principles. Uh, so as the UK exits the European Union, uh, we may see a reaffirmation of that sort of majoritarian, sovereigntist, as Colin mm -hmm. says, approach uh, to constitutionalism. Uh, which in the past has not really suited the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland. Something else that we've talked about as well is building in human rights and equality checks um, for all of the stages of the withdrawal. So all of the policies that might be implemented that we have these checks that are mm -hmm. taking place um, to make sure that whatever we're left with when we leave um, is not going to be violating human rights and equality standards. And I think more broadly as well, while not specifically a human rights issue per se, um, maintaining membership in the single market and the customs union is important for the potential knock-on implications for human rights as well as all of the other economic issues. Um, we know that if we leave the single market and the customs union in Northern Ireland will be one of the most economically impacted regions. Um, so we could potentially face a drop of about 12% in the GDP, as well as a whole bunch of other issues um, that will be created in the economy in terms of access to labor, um, the viability of a number of different sectors and businesses. So. Having continuing that membership, I think, will ensure that we still have access to things like socioeconomic rights, that we have standards of living that um, are acceptable in Northern Ireland. So I think maintaining access in, in those institutions, are it's one way of helping um, to mitigate the potential economic consequences as well. I suppose following on from you know, all that, one of the was well, first of all, it's been interesting to see the, the way in which bits of the constitution are are trying to hold the executive to account. You know, if you look at the work of the House of Lords, the Westminster Parliament, you know, maybe the, in the end, the Westminster Parliament that, that, that makes the call over the executive in terms of some of these issues, uh, the role of the the judiciary in that. But I suppose the bigger question in relation to those points is whether. At the far end of this, at some point, uh, the UK is going to have to revisit its constitutional arrangements, you know, to, to take forward the sort of you know fit for purpose, you know, the phrase, you know, is the UK constitution really currently fit for purpose, and is it time for you know a new conversation about a different form of constitutional arrangement that respects some of these principles that we've talked about today, because at the end of this, let's be you know, clear. One of the interesting things in Northern Ireland is that, as of right, people have the right to, to exercise an option which you know, isn't mentioned that often, but has is, is been talked about more and more frequently now, and that's to to remain in the European Union by leaving the UK as a, a, a as an option mm -hmm. that people have. Obviously, there's the debate in Scotland as as well. So, you know, at the end of all this, the old traditional model of British constitutionalism may end up destroying the UK as it currently exists. So I think that's a, a conversation that's beyond the scope of today, but it's a discussion I think that's going to have to 
be had. Finally, on that, however, to return to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, it's a conversation, if it's going to be meaningful for here, has to encompass the totality of relationships around these islands. Thanks very much for your contributions today. I'm sure we could pick up on some of them at a later date to see where we've ended up. Um, And there'll be a whole lot of um, links and things in the bio for anybody that wants any further information on any of the issues raised by today's episode. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUB LawPod, and you can also visit our website at www.lawpod.org. Please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was LawPod.